Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. We have new unemployment numbers out, by the way. We have over 30 million people who have become unemployed in the last six weeks. That's almost 20%, 18.6% of the U.S. labor force. That is Great Depression territory. Over 20%, you're in a depression. But the stock market is still doing well. Why is that? Well, we'll talk to Richard Wolf about that. The Economist, the co-founder of Democracy at Work.info, author of numerous books, his most recent, Understanding Socialism. In addition to Democracy at Work.info, he also has a website at rdwolf with two fs.com. And his Twitter handle is Prof Wolf, as in Professor Wolf. Professor Wolf, welcome back. I'm so glad to have you with us. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. I'm seeing that the Fed now has uh, $6 trillion on its balance sheet, most of this in corporate bonds. And that seems to be floating the economy. William Cohen was writing about this in the, uh, what was it, the New York Times or the Washington Post. I'm trying to make sense of all this. And he talks about uh, on March 23rd, the Fed put together an array of loans and other forms of credit totaling $4 trillion. On April 9th, the Fed struck again, providing an additional $2.3 trillion. So they're now at $6.3 on their balance sheet. And now they're holding $3.7 trillion in credit assets. He goes on that as a result of this, companies like Yum Brands that owns KFC and Pizza Hut, they issued $600 million in new debt. The Fed bought it all. Cruise ship company Carnival issued $4 billion in new debt. Fed bought it all. Basically, the Fed is supporting all these companies. And it seems to me that... The stock market has decoupled itself as a result of this. I mean, $6 trillion is like half the entire or maybe a third of the entire GDP of the United States. It's a mass. It's twice the federal budget. It's a massive amount of money for the Fed to pour into the economy, particularly when it's pouring it all into just a couple of thousand giant corporations. Is it fair to say that the stock market is no longer an indicator of the economy? Um, arguably never really was, but certainly is not coupled to the economy the way it was back in the 1930s. And if so, what does that mean for average people? Okay, let's do it step by step. Short answer to your first question. Yes, the stock market is now more decoupled, more disconnected from the underlying economy of producing and distributing goods and services than probably at any time in its history. 
it's never 100%. The stock market is interconnected with the rest of our economy and vice versa. So there's always some linkage. But what we're seeing now is a more attenuated, a more stretched out linkage. Nor is there any mystery about it. Here's the basic process. The federal government, through the agency of the Federal Reserve, is in full panic mode. If there's any basic point I can get across, it's that the view now is we are on the edge of a precipitous collapse of our economy and society. Therefore, anything and everything that can be done must be done. Because if we don't get through this, then worrying about this or that longer-term effect won't make any difference. A little bit like a presidential candidate understanding that unless he or she gets through the primary, there's really not much point in worrying about the general election. So the Fed is panicked, the government is panicked, and they've decided to do what they did in the aftermath of the crashes of 2000, so-called dot-com crash, and the crash of 2008, the so-called subprime mortgage. In both cases, they flooded the economy with money. Now, in retrospect, it looks like relatively small increases compared to the gigantic one we're in now. But this crisis being bigger, they decided to do the same thing, only more so, and that's what they are doing. So think of it this way. Massive amounts of money coming into the corporate sector, into the U.S. government directly from banks, from insurance companies, or as it may begin to do directly from the Fed. You have a vast amount of new money literally being created on the checking accounts of these big corporations, because that's how this is done. And now the question is, where is the money going to go? If all of that money were to go into the economy trying to buy goods and services, we would have the spectacular inflation that everybody has always worried about. Our output of goods and services these days is precipitously going down. We have over 30 million people unemployed. If at the same time that the supply of goods and services is going down because people are not working, but the quantity of money coming into the economy is zooming up, you would have the classic case of too much money chasing after too few goods, and up would go prices. That's not happening. And the reason is no company has any incentive to hire anybody. No company has any incentive to invest in producing goods when a soaring unemployment guarantees you will not have, uh, be able to sell your goods. So where is the money going to go if it makes no sense for private capitalists to hire people, produce goods when the market has collapsed? And the answer is the stock market. It's the one place you can now go where you can buy something and hope that it's worth more two weeks, three weeks, six months from now than when you bought it. And because there's so much money flooding in, this craziness is in fact rational. 
because there is so much money that you probably will find someone two weeks, six weeks, ten weeks from now who will buy whatever stock you purchase today with all this fresh new money and will buy it in order to play the same game in turn that you've just played with that person. And so you have what is classically and will soon be called a stock market bubble happening at the same time that the underlying real economy is collapsing with a massive unemployment, shutdown of production, closed stores and, and factories and offices everywhere. And indeed, the two phenomena which would appear to be in contradiction aren't, because it's the very shutdown of the real production of goods and services that is diverting all of the extra money into the stock market because it's the only place where the people who get that money uh, can make a profit by buying and selling uh, stocks. And so you, the inflation that people said didn't show up, that's a mistake. It did show up. It didn't show up in the market for goods and services because all that money got diverted to the stock market. But that's why the stock market has been doing well in the period after the 2008 crisis. And even in the last two or three weeks, as the unemployment was going crazy, the stock market was going up, too. And that's an undeniable demonstration of a disconnect. So this $6 trillion that the Fed has manufactured out of thin air, if that was given to 100 million working families, and there's 130 million working households in the country, but I'll use 100 million because I could do the math that way, that would be $60,000 per family all across the United States. They could have simply given every family in America 60 grand. Obviously, they didn't. That money went to fewer than 2,000 corporations. And in terms of the stock market going up, the major benefit of that is going to fewer than 200,000 wealthy American families. Would it be safe to say that all of this is bailing out the rich at the expense of all the rest of us? Absolutely. It is a classic example of what we used to call trickle-down economics. You're helping the people at the top, rich people, corporations, and then you're telling yourself a fanciful story that it will trick and trickle down, which it never did. Professor Wolf, I believe that I have read at least three op-eds, editorials, or news stories in the Financial Times over the last month, um, either speculating or outright asserting that what the Fed is doing in buying these corporate bonds, particularly as they get into junk grade bonds, like they just bought a whole bunch of Ford's bonds, is not legal. It's not part of their charter, essentially. I'd like to get your thoughts on that. And also, why is Jerome Powell doing this, given the massive potential downside of inflation and crashing and asset bubbles here? Is it because he's just simply been intimidated by Donald Trump? He was acting like a good Fed chief at first, and then Trump started regularly trashing him on Twitter. I mean, do we have a cowed Fed? Again, the two questions are separate. The first question, Basically, the rule books, the limits, the traditions are out the window. We've not had a crash of capitalism this bad in in probably nearly a century. And the combination that the trigger this time happened to be a virus rather than people not paying mortgages or rather than overpriced dot-com stocks back in 2000, this confluence of a a health crisis and another capitalist crash Uh, It's a little bit overwhelming and too much. They had a tradition of mainly dealing in government securities, uh, the Federal Reserve, I mean, uh, buying and selling them. But things are so 
crashed now that they, that they can't just do that. They have to pump in much more money, uh, and so they've extended it and buying corporate bonds. Whether there is or isn't a rule at this point on that really doesn't matter because they are so desperate to flood the economy with money because they're not willing to consider any other policy option. That's really not much of an option left. They have to buy corporate bonds. And the fear about the inflation is, of course, reasonable. First of all, this money, as I said before, is flooding into the stock market, creating a wild discontent, uh, disconnect, meaning that prices in the stocks really have nothing to do with the underlying economy, have a life of their own, and the minute anything happens to threaten the endless pumping of money, you run the risk of a collapse in the stock market, which will indeed have all kinds of effects uh, on the economies. It is a very dangerous game, and it can only be explained by the level of panic about how disastrous the current situation is. And I think that's the basic message. You did raise earlier that there are other policies like trickle-up economics, giving the money to everybody, particularly the poor, those who have the least to, to get them through this, because we know that they will spend every nickel that the government gives them and thereby stimulate demand side of the economy. We do have a special problem because it is unsafe at this point for large numbers of people to go to work. Therefore, what the policy ought to be would be a combination of trickle up, give people at the bottom the money with which to create a demand, and secondly, order the society to clean up the workplaces with the testing and the masks and everything else to enable the economy to go. This government isn't doing either of those things. That's the tragedy. Hmm. Professor Wolf, I was reading a piece in the Financial Times about the repo market, a rather lengthy piece, actually. And one of the points that they made in there was this is the overnight lending, basically, that banks do with each other, swapping the cash for treasuries and things. And the Fed started intervening back in September in a big way. And one of the points that this article made was that the reason that the Fed had to intervene in the repo market, or one of the main reasons, was that the Fed itself had been unwinding QE, the quantitative easing, the purchasing, basically flooding the market with money by purchasing treasuries, that they were unwinding that and selling these things back into the marketplace. And it was creating a, a disequilibrium in the treasury market, which interfered with the repo market. And if that's the case, and now the Fed's balance sheet has gone from $2 trillion, which was the consequence of the QE, to $6 trillion, how do they get out of this? How long can they maintain this? And how do they unwind it without all kinds of secondary systemic crashes like the repo market? Absolutely. Bingo. You have the understanding. That's right. It, this is like a, a, you know, a, a version of a Ponzi scheme. You keep the thing going by, by drawing more suckers into this game, fooling the original ones by using the money of the subsequent ones to keep the illusion going. They are flooding the market each time with more money. It leads to tremendous imbalances all over the place. And then they try to solve those by pushing in more money, which is a temporary fix, just like uh, the Madoff plan. You temporarily satisfied the early investors by giving them a big chunk of what the later investors gave you. Eventually, when the moment comes that you can't do that, 
excuse me, for whatever reason, then the jig is up and, and you can't continue. But they're so panicked that they can't think like that anymore. So you get that in the article you read when they realize the connection, but at this point they don't feel they have any option. And given who these people are, the Powells of the world, the Trumps, uh, and the Democrats too for that matter, they think and they've thought now for 40 years that whatever the private sector does will work itself out is the best way to go. Capitalism is the best thing since sliced bread. The job of the government is simply to, to get them through the rough patches when they occur. This mentality is what's blocking them from taking the steps they need. And now, which is the most dangerous threat to capitalism I could imagine, and I'm a critic of it, telling the mass of the American people, we are going to force you back to work while we do not force the employers to create a safe workplace. This is a level of um, a choice between one disaster or another that the mass of people are slowly going to understand is the desperate final gasp of a system that can't give anyone anything other than two equally horrific choices. That's a system that's exhausted. And I think somewhere the Fed kind of knows it, doesn't know what else to do because of the way it thinks. It can't think a bottom-up strategy the way you described it, giving everybody the money, which, by the way, is what Franklin Roosevelt in part did in the 1930s. You don't have anyone in a position of power in either party who's willing at this point to go in that direction or offer it. Uh, the two folks who might have, Warren and, and Sanders, have been pushed out. So you're left with this accumulating set of dead ends. Wow. So how does this play out, in your opinion? Well, in my opinion, we are in a series of, I don't mean to be overdramatic here, but it's a kind of a death spiral. Pretty dramatic time. Yes, it is a dramatic time, so maybe I'm allowed. You responded to the dot-com crisis in 2000 by cutting interest rates to nothing and flooding the economy with money. What that meant was that every business in America for the last 20 years has had one way to solve all of its problems, whether it produced this wrong thing or chose the bad technology or is fighting with its employees. The cheapest, easiest way to get out of whatever mess you were in was to borrow virtually limitless amounts of money at a zero or near zero interest rate. So the corporate sector went crazy overloading itself with debt, which is, is now offloading onto the Federal Reserve. I mean, no matter what you're training, this is a crazy process in which the solution to the dot-com crisis in 2000 set the stage for lending money to the mass of people who couldn't afford a mortgage, so that collapsed in 2008. And now you're seeing the corporate collapse under the trigger of a virus, which instead of being handled as the medical problem it is, leads to a kind of collapse of the system. These are desperate, panic-driven acts of a system running itself out of gas. It is a terrible time, not least because the system and the people who lead it have no idea how to get out of this mess. 
Well, I would think that they know about trickle-up. They're just unwilling to do it because they think it's something exactly. like socialism. They can't think their way through to saying our strategies have failed. We must change a basic direction. That's a difficult thing for leaders ever to do. And we're stuck with leaders who are probably less capable of thinking their way through and are therefore literally uh, the, 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 the conductor on a train headed right for a stone wall, and we're already at that point with 30 million people unemployed. If ever you needed a change of direction, that very fact should be the index you have to move. Yeah, this is the band played on, but this is the music on the Titanic. Professor Richard Wolf, thanks so much for dropping by today and illuminating all these ideas and concepts for us and information. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Louise went out to pick up some gardening stuff yesterday. And yes, was very, very careful. We've got a great store here that delivers it out to the car and you give them the credit card in advance and it's no contact and all that kind of stuff. But several drivers were just like maniacs. And, I, you know, I think people are starting to express their fear or their rage in other ways around losing their jobs or the prospect of losing their jobs or not being able to pay their bills or whatever it may be. And it's turning into road rage. There was a mail carrier who was shot because... The guy was upset that he hadn't gotten a stimulus check. I mean, you know, it's getting weird. So uh, there's that going on. Trump also suggested that Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan should negotiate with the terrorists who attacked the Capitol building. He said they are very fine people and she should give a little. And they were shouting, Heil Whitmer and lock her up. You negotiate with people like that? Really? Really? And by the way, you know, 700 protesters in Michigan, and it's all over the news, all over the place. There have been many protests, you know, pre-coronavirus with much larger numbers that never got any coverage at all. I mean, it's just really remarkable. But, but you know, we're talking about COVID-19 here. Uh, well, let me back up a little bit, actually. I'm, I'm on, the, on the mailing list for FreedomWorks. And I mean, you can get on it too. It's fascinating. Freedomworks.com, it might be .org, but in any case, Freedomworks is the group that, you know, the Koch brothers helped create back in the day and that led the charge against Obamacare. We don't want no stinking government messing with our Medicare, right? And no to Obamacare. You know, people shouldn't have health insurance or health care. Choice. We want choice. The choice to die in the gutter. That was Freedomworks. And it's basically a billionaire funded uh, shill, you know, a front organization. They got Stephen Moore working for them now. And they've been sending out these emails. I've read a few of them on the air. I read one earlier in the week or, or late last week to share with you, basically saying that they're setting up these protests. And they listed eight or nine states where they were setting up protests or they were encouraging protests or they were simply informing their readers of protests to try to open the economy up. Now, why do the billionaires want to open the economy up? Because they're safe in their mansions. They want the little people to go to work, right? You know, the, the guy who runs Smithfield Foods and has paid millions of dollars a year as a CEO, he's not showing up at the meatpacking plant. You know, the governors of these states are not showing up at the meatpacking plants. The billionaires want the working people to show up because, hey, we got to get our money. Keep in mind, nobody makes money if somebody doesn't do something. Working people create all this wealth, these billions and trillions of dollars in wealth. So now in Michigan, uh, event organizer Jason Howland, 
told uh, WOOD-TV, this big TV station in Grand Rapids, he said the goal was to get a no vote on the extension of the emergency declaration from the state Senate. And we want our rights back, right? So here's what happened. All these protesters showed up at the Michigan State House in Lansing with guns, forced their way into the Capitol building, forced their way into the floor of the House of Representatives and started chanting things like, first it was let us in, let us in, let us in, Heil Whitmer, Governor Whitmer, the Democratic governor. I mean, it's just, it's just nuts. And there's a great uh, summary of this over at Raw Story that Travis Gettys put together. These guys are the shills for the billionaires, and I'll bet they don't even realize it, just like the Tea Partiers didn't realize. I mean, they, oh, what a nice bus we've got here with Tea Party on the side of it to carry us to the protest, never wondering, where did the money come from to rent this bus? <laughs> you know, it's the billionaires. So, you know, the billionaires have their suckers in Michigan and, 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 and around the country. And it takes a fairly low IQ, I guess, to be a sucker for these billionaires, which is why you get these dead-enders. You get these people who are showing up with Confederate flags and Nazi memorabilia and guns and stuff like that. And it's really kind of sad. Meanwhile, over at the White House, Joe Grogan, who is the top domestic policy advisor for Donald Trump, has announced he's leaving. Before he came to the Trump White House, by the way, he was the top lobbyist for Gilead Pharmaceutical. And thus, at the White House, he was uh, playing a principal role in making sure that drug pricing didn't diminish the profits of the big drug companies. You're hearing remdesivir, I believe is how it's pronounced, might shorten the course of a, of a COVID infection by 30%. We don't know yet what the price is going to be. This is a drug, by the way, that was developed in collaboration with the U.S. government, with the money from the National Institutes of Health. But are we going to get any benefits from it? No. No, the company's going to make a fortune. And that would be Gilead, the company that, that uh, Grogan used to, used to work for as a lobbyist. And in Maryland, Republican Governor Larry Hogan is saying that he had to, he's having the Maryland National Guard and the state police guarding his stockpile of COVID test kits that he was successful in buying from South Korea. His wife is Korean. She speaks Korean. And she cut a deal with the South Korea, with a South Korean company to get these test kits. He had to bring the plane into the BWI airport, the Baltimore airport, instead of Dulles, so that the federal government wouldn't seize them. And now he's trying to keep Kushner's goons away, you know, because Kushner is running around the country seizing uh, masks, seizing testing kits, seizing all kinds of stuff. Uh, particularly from blue states, but I mean, you know, Larry Hogan is a Republican. It's mind-boggling what's going on. Marvin in New York City. Hey, Marvin, what's up? Hey, how you doing, Tom? Yeah, how's everything? How's you and the family? Everybody okay? Yeah, everything. So far, Knockwood, uh, Marvin. How about you? Yeah, everybody's fine. God bless. God bless. Yeah, I was just uh, making want to make a comment on uh, people in uh, Michigan walking around with guns. And being able to go up into uh, government buildings, state buildings with uh, weapons. I uh, remember a time when uh, the Black Panthers tried to exercise their Second Amendment rights. When J.A. Hoover and the police departments around the country held up and crushed out. Thank you, Marvin. Yeah, they, you know, they killed Fred Hampton. They killed a whole bunch of people. And it was when uh, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale decided that they were going to walk up to the California State House in Sacramento with guns in hand. And Reagan was out there with a group of uh, children that he was something for. And uh, he freaked out. 
And within two weeks, they had the, uh, what was it called, the Mumford Bill? It starts with an M anyway. They had this legislation within two weeks that banned open carry in California. Up to that point, they had open carry. But, you know, oh, my God, a half a dozen scary black people with guns. You know, that was the end of that. So, yeah, I think that if it had been 400 or 700, the estimates are between four and 700, between four and 700 black guys with guns, you know, wearing uh, Black Panther symbols and things who had showed up at the Michigan State House, there would have been a very different result from the police. I think that we can all predict that. Nancy in Arlington Heights, Illinois. Hey, Nancy, what's up? We just found out last Thursday that our niece has been diagnosed with COVID-19. She just received her Bachelor of Nursing in December, and she's been working at a psychiatric hospital and it gets worse. It took her three days to get tested. Now she's stuck at home with her four children, and her doctor told her to just assume they all have it, which is horrendous. So we're so worried about her. But all these people, Trump and all these horrible, horrible people who work for him, remind me of something that my grandfather used to say, my Swedish grandfather. He'd say, there are more horses' asses in the world than horses. <laughs> apparently, apparently. <laughs> Thanks for the report and, uh, you know, uh, give our best wishes to your, do you say niece? Yes, my niece. Yeah. Thank you, Tom. Uh, thank you, Nancy. Good talking to you. Julian in Clatskanie, uh, Oregon. I wanted to point out that the state motto of Kentucky, you know, Mitch McConnell let all the states bankrupt themselves. The state motto mm-hmm. is <clears throat> united we stand, divided we fall. If we don't go by what they say, but what they do, this is definitely intentional. They're intentionally trying to kill off Americans that they consider lesser. Well, that's uh, my point, Julian. You know, about half of our deaths nationwide appear to be elderly people and in particular people in nursing homes. In some states, the nursing home deaths constitute more than half or two thirds of all the deaths. And I believe that's the case here in Oregon as well. You know, they figure, hey, we don't have to pay for, uh, you know, Social Security and, and long-term Medicaid for these people anymore. And then the secondary population is getting hit really, really hard are black people, particularly in, in Georgia right now and in Louisiana. Now, I think the guys running the Trump administration and the white racists in the Republican Party are looking at that going, hey, that's cool. That's cool. As long as it's not killing a lot of, you know, middle-aged white people or young white people, we're good with this. I really think they're, they're thinking like that, Julian. Yeah, and it's 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 frustrating to see that Americans aren't, I mean, just because they're not wearing swastikas on their arms doesn't mean that they're not promoting an ideology that is detrimental to society. Yeah, well, um, some of the guys in Michigan yesterday were wearing swastikas. Oh, man. I mean, yeah, it's the ones just, that raided like, the, the, the house there. Yeah. yeah, and frankly, I think they should have been disarmed and arrested. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just... It's, well, if they, it's if they were black people, imagine if it was Black Panther oh. doing that. This is the ultimate statement of white privilege, that they can scream at a cop from three inches with a gun in their hand, and the cop isn't going to do anything. You, you try having a Hispanic person or a black person do that. They will be dead in seconds. I mean, you're absolutely right, Tilly. And this is the ultimate expression of white privilege. You know, this disgusting display of arrogance and stupidity we saw in Michigan. Jessica in Riverside, Illinois. Hey, Jessica, what's up? 
the idiot's son-in-law needs to wear a hat when he says the federal government rose to that challenge, and this is a great success story. He needs a hat with the death tolls on it and with the unemployment numbers on it to show what a great job he's done. Of course, yeah. that would be subject to change on the numbers of how many more we have. 60,000 dead, 30 million unemployed. It's, it's mind-boggling. The workers at the meat plants need to go on strike so that they can go back in time and have unions again. Yeah, the problem is that about half of them are Hispanic and about a quarter are black. The average wage is around $15 an hour. These are people who are living, in many cases, on the margins of society. For many of the Hispanics, the legal margins of society. For pretty much everybody else, including you know, poor white people working in those plants, which is you know, a little less than a quarter, they're living in the economic margins of society, and they don't feel that they can, you know, that they can protest. In fact, they're not even calling in sick in large numbers. It's you know, people are desperate for a job, which is the real tragedy of this. You know, we used to have, and Jessica, thank you for the call. These used to be good union jobs: meatpacking plants. Meatpacking plants used to pay what in today's dollars would probably be forty bucks an hour, but you know, now they pay fifteen dollars an hour. In some cases, they pay as little as ten dollars an hour. You're standing there with a very, very sharp knife all day long cutting meat. And what are we made of? We're meat. I mean, the accidents are huge. The number of you know, people who get killed and wounded and things in these plants, is, it's very dangerous work. Statistically, it's more dangerous than being a cop. It's really unfortunate what's going on. Al in Indianapolis, Indiana. Hey, Al, what's on your mind today? I just want to say that I am absolutely convinced 100% that Trump is going to go all in to do anything he can to save his butt because I grew up in New York and I saw everything that he did. My father was in the trade. He saw how Trump swindled all the thousands of tradesmen. I lost my job because of a company he bankrupted. And I watched all this other stuff. If he loses this election, Everything he's ever done will come out in the open, and he will. Everything he's been trying to hide, everything he had Roy Cohen to hide four years ago, that's all going to come out. He's literally fighting for his life, and he is literally in the corner like a like a cornered rat. I expect he's going to go all out, and we're all going to pay for it. Well, and in the last days, I mean, this is what Hitler did. You know, let's charge to Moscow, and that was his undoing. It was it was a suicide move. It was a desperate suicide move. But Hitler was willing to take his country down along with him, and he largely mm-hmm. did. And my biggest fear is that you're right, Al, that Donald Trump will do the same thing. That he's willing to have he's willing to risk World War III. He's willing to risk the death of hundreds of millions, perhaps the end of all life on this planet in order to get himself reelected or to avoid going to prison or just more broadly to avoid being exposed as a fraud and a grifter. And as a guy who not only is not a billionaire, is not even a millionaire, is actually in debt, you know, at a level that's higher than all his assets. He's, he's broke. He's been broke since the 90s, as, as David K. Johnston keeps pointing out and bringing the receipts to prove. So uh, I'm with Absolutely. you, Al. I'm very, very concerned about this. And this is, this is why we need strong congressional leadership. Al, i got to move along, but thank you for the call. Well said. Adam in Youngstown, Ohio. Hey, Adam, what's on your mind? Question for you. I just wondered if you can trace this back to a source for me. I was on the phone a couple hours ago with a mortgage agent. I've been passed along to six different ones over the past 19 years, saying they didn't get a payment that they got. And I have to show burden of proof that I sent the payment. I sent it through my Gmail. And the woman asked for some TCK code or something like that, confirmation that it was sent. I get onto Google, and it blocks me. And it says, you have to agree to the terms and conditions before we'll even let you access your Gmail. 
And every smart device we have, every app you get, you have to agree to these terms and conditions. Does this go to net neutrality? Does it go back to the Telecommunications Reform Act of 96? Is it Citizens United? What has taken away our freedoms so that we can't opt out of that? There's kind of two pieces to this. One has to do with forced arbitration, which is typically part of these agreements. But more broadly, this is a debate that goes back to the late 1980s when Microsoft rolled out. These are called shrink wrap contracts or shrink wrap agreements that basically said back when when software was delivered on uh, on floppy disks and then later on CDs, that by opening this package, you are agreeing to the following terms and conditions. It has become the norm, and basically your only option is to say, no, I don't want to play. And if you read the terms and conditions, you'll find that they're insanely lopsidedly, you know, on behalf uh, of the big corporation. Completely. The From guy. third-party subsidiaries yeah, and, and that's, to owning your information. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and this, yeah, yes, uh, you know, Google owns your mail, as do all the other mail providers, except there's a few like Proton Mail, you know, that are secure mail. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. But this is this is uh, pervasive. Yeah. It's huge. And the only way that we're going to get a handle on this is legislatively. And as long as the GOP controls a branch, any branch of government, uh, or for that matter, the judiciary, it's probably not going to happen because this benefits corporations and makes it almost impossible for average Americans to, A, know what these corporations are doing with our information. Facebook is notorious for this. Uh, you know, you have to sign mm-hmm. terms and conditions to, to join Facebook. And B, sue them. You know, it, it, makes, it, it makes it virtually impossible. Adam, I got to move along, but, you know, good luck. Peg in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Hey, Peg, what's up? I live here in a pretty red district, and I've been able to work from home most of the time, but I had to go into the office this week, and people there are really, like, restless. Let's open this up. Let's get back to work. You know, I want to go out to eat again, that kind of stuff. And what I'm realizing is we are not feeling the effects of the COVID pandemic. We don't know anybody who's died. And so I was trying to think of ideas of how to bring the number. I mean, 60,000 is a lot of people. And I was trying to think of how I can bring the number of people to light. And, you know, I do websites. I was thinking, well, just put, you know, an honorarium up and all these people. And then I realized you can't do that because, you know, you publish the names and you get into all kinds of trouble. And I was wondering if you had any ideas. I think that the media needs to be, in fact, Louise and I were talking about this yesterday. I said, we need a Kate Steinel. Do you know who Kate Steinel was, Peck? No. Okay, you don't watch Fox News. Back about a year and a half, two years ago, there was this uh, nice, attractive, middle-class white woman. And I think she was on a boardwalk in California. I forget which city. I think it might have been in San Francisco, but whatever. She was out publicly. And a guy who was a, quote, illegal immigrant, an undocumented person in this country, was carrying a gun and he dropped the gun, accidentally dropped the gun. It fell out of his pocket onto the ground and discharged and shot and killed Kate Steinle. And for months, every single day on right wing hate radio, right across the board, all these guys, Hannity, Limbaugh, all these guys and Fox News were doing profiles of Kate Steinle. Let's talk to Kate Steinle's family. Let's talk about what a wonderful person she was, how horrible it was that this evil undocumented, this evil illegal, you know, alien killed her. And, and uh, we, you know, it's all because it's a sanctuary city. I mean, it's just all this insane outrage. If, if you say Kate Steinle to 100 people and, you know, 30 of them will say, I know who that is. Those are the people who watch Fox News and listen to right wing hate radio. We need a Kate Steinle. We need a face 
for this virus. We need, you know, and and it needs to be publicized. And it probably should be a person who is given the political power of the white middle class. It should probably be a member of the white middle class. You know, Chuck Schumer is holding a press conference today about the impact of COVID on communities of color, which is really important, and we need legislative relief for that. But what he needs to be publicizing is that white guys like, you know, the Proud Boys can get this and die from it, too. Frankly, I mean, it is a public relations strategy. That's what I think. And I haven't seen that person in the media. We need to find them or the the media needs to find them. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's, or enter the code Hartman the two ends before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. 
Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Hey, the Defense Department has confirmed what, uh, to quote the New York Times, what seekers of extraterrestrial life have long hoped to be true. You know those videos from 2004 and 2015 by Navy pilots showing what looks like UFOs, in one case chasing them. The Pentagon has released them officially, and they said they're doing this to, quote, clear up any misconceptions. So uh, it's kind of cool stuff. Uh, let's see here. David in Woodland Hills. David, you've got our uh, more or less monthly astrology update, and you've got something about Trump. I would like to tell you what the astrologers have to say about Trump and where humanity is and where humanity is headed. Okay. Um, we have entered the age of Aquarius. These ages are 2,160 years long, so we will peak in a 1,000 years. Aquarius is the sign of the Enlightenment, the humanitarian, peace on earth. John Lennon's Imagine. Imagine no countries, no religion, the people sharing all everything. That's Aquarius. Aquarius is also the time when we will peak into our brain power. So in a thousand years, it may be possible for us to communicate telepathically. It may be possible to astral travel. We'll know when we get there. That's the good news. We are headed for greatness. Unfortunately for us, we're here at the beginning, and the beginning always indicates extremely difficult times because all of the existing structures have to be torn asunder. Capitalism, religion, patriarchy, racism, it all has to go in order for the Enlightenment to take hold. And so many astrologers are coming to the conclusion, and this is disturbing on so many levels, that Donald Trump's soul is on the heroic path of being the great destroyer who ushers in the Enlightenment. We hate the raging forest fire that destroys everything in its path. We love the new growth. And finally, the genius of Aquarius and a question for all of us. Aquarius recognizes that when we all become enlightened and on the same page, that can lead to a cult-like existence. And so it is imperative that the individual maintain their individuality within the collective. And that's why whenever I see people with tattoos and piercings all over their face, it's not my thing. But the importance of their right to be able to do that is my thing. And the question if all of this is true, what do we do about it? We don't want to be part of the destruction. That's not who we are. Even if it leads to the Enlightenment, what do we do about it? I have my answer. I, I wonder what you think. I generally don't so much run my life by astrology, so I, I, don't, I don't know what to say, David. Well, would you like to hear my answer? Sure. Go for it. Well, we have to minimize the suffering as much as we can. And most of us are evolved enough to want to do that. And secondly, we have to be the voices in the wilderness, shouting out to the children and the grandchildren the same thing you say about American history. The highest peaks always follow the deepest valleys. Yeah. Oh, good one. David, thank you. I, I uh, appreciate your insights. Uh, I thank really appreciate it. Thank you. Merrick in West Hills, California. Hey, Merrick, what's on your mind today? 
I've been following a public health whistleblower for about 20 years. He wrote a book called Death in the Air. It was called Globalism, Terrorism, and Toxic Warfare. And he, on his website, revolutiontelevision.net, stated that in October, late October, they had a mock pandemic, tabletop pandemic at Johns Hopkins University. I don't know if you know about that. Yeah, they did. This has been this was in The New York Times. Yeah. Okay. because and and also, uh, you know, late last year, they did this. The the U.S. military did this. They did a mock pandemic. Yeah, yeah, uh, they did, too. But the thing is, if you watch the video on coronavirus uh, predictive programming, you know, they had that program called Predict that uh, was put up by USAID that they stopped, that Trump stopped in September, that was supposed to predict the kind of viruses that were coming down the pipeline. So they knew it was coming and they had this uh, mock pandemic. But in that video on uh, coronavirus uh, predictive programming, they, he shows that the J- Japanese lab looked at the gene sequence in the virus and they found that there was an HIV protein that was put at the end of the virus. So, yeah. you know, so Merrick, you look at Merrick, what's going I'm, on. You, know, you, you have wandered into, into conspiracy theory territory, and I'm not going to follow you there. The U.S. government has screwed up hugely. And we had all these, uh, you know, let's look for these kinds of dangers programs that were put into place during the Clinton administration, during the Bush administration, and in particular during the Obama administration. Bush with SARS and with Obama was H1N1, the flu. Those programs were shut down by Donald Trump. He closed the Office of Pandemics basically in the National Security Office inside the White House and in the Homeland Security Division. He just shut them down, laid off everybody or fired everybody, said, we're not going to do that anymore. And so, of course, we were utterly unprepared because we've got an idiot as a president right now. But when you wander off into, I'm just not going to go there. Richard in Bellevue, Washington. Hey, Richard, what's up? Resident Trump is putting out an order that's completely unenforceable. It's just another daily soap screen. He can't force the meat plants to go ahead and open up. If if the workers go in and they get sick, then they won't be coming back to work. If they go in and die, they won't come back to work. The owners can't go ahead and force workers in there to go ahead and perform duties. No, they're not going to force them at gunpoint, Richard. But what they're doing is they're saying you will not qualify for unemployment benefits and presumably thus also other state benefits. You will not qualify for these benefits if you don't show up for work. And that's the tool. And I would say that that's that's economic coercion that is every bit as vigorous as coercion at the at the point of a barrel of a gun or nearly. What good are benefits if your kids or you are going to get sick and possibly die? So, in other words, there is a choice there. And then what's he going to do? Send in the National Guard? It's not a choice that I think any of us would choose to make. Richard, thank you. Jose in Toledo, Ohio. Hey, Jose, what's up? Well, I was just going to comment on will we go to war in order to save his uh, election? I, I say mm-hmm. yes. He's he'll do anything. This man has is going to get what he wants. The silver spoon isn't doing him any good, so he's going to have to find a way to do it. I mean, even the example that he said, "Hey, sixty thousand dead is acceptable." I think he said that a uh, yes. a, a couple weeks ago. And here yeah, he we said, are. If we have sixty thousand dead, we did a good job. Right, right. And that's just like, uh, I know this guy at work, he says, okay, I'll have this ready for you by Friday. But he knows damn well he could do it by tomorrow. 
but he's given himself all this room. And if he doesn't make make it by tomorrow, then he's still a good guy. He's setting this number up for the people. Yeah, we're doing good. He's putting it in their heads. This man has will do anything, anything at yeah, all. It's called moving the goalposts. Right, right, and, and I and unfortunately, people fall for that. Unfortunately, I. I I don't know. It's I'm hard. I'm oh, starting to think, Jose, that if Trump starts a, quote, small war, you know, he's, as Richard Clark pointed out, he has instructed the military in the Persian Gulf to be more aggressive toward the Iranian military and take what might be a, an otherwise ignored incident and try to turn it into a conflict. If that happens, and if he gets the little war that he wants with Iran, I don't think Americans are going to rally around the flag like they have in previous BS wars, whether it was the Gulf of Tonkin, where LBJ lied to us, or whether it was invading Afghanistan and Iraq, where George W. Bush and Dick Cheney lied to us. We figured out those lies in retrospect. I think that people are are anticipating lies in advance right now. I, I think this is part of why Trump's approval rating is so low. He's down in the 30s, 38, 39%. I mean, that's mind-boggling. I truly hope you're right, Tom, because... Uh, yeah. This guy I think Americans are waking up. I, I don't think that's going to stop him from trying to do it, though, Jose, and that's what scares the hell out of me and has me very, very concerned. I mean, he's sitting on the largest nuclear arsenal in the world and the biggest military in the world, and, and I don't think he's afraid to use it. Jose, thank you for the call. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. 
Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. This was BBC. Twin sisters have died within three days of each other after testing positive for coronavirus. Children's nurse Katie Davis, 37, died at Southampton General Hospital on Thursday. Her identical twin, Emma, also 37, obviously, herself a former nurse, died at the same hospital early on Friday. This is very, very sad. And a Louisiana girl, a 12-year-old in Louisiana, her heart stopped. Her name is Juliet Daly. She was infected with the coronavirus. We initially thought that this was less severe for children. And apparently in terms of the total number of children who get bad symptoms, it, it is less severe. But her heart stopped for two minutes. They had to intubate her. And there is a growing number of these children who develop this rare inflammatory disease where the veins and arteries become inflamed, which is exactly what COVID does. But it's doing it to children. It looks like Kawasaki disease, but it's not quite Kawasaki disease. And the girl, she recovered from this. She was on a ventilator for several days, unconscious, and then they brought her back. She's 12 years old. She's in great health. A healthy 12-year-old Louisiana girl, you know, wasn't obese, didn't have any of the danger signs. But she said that when she was sick, it hurt so much and she was so sick, she said that she just wanted, she said, I didn't want to live. I just wanted it all to stop. I mean, this is, this is a really rough disease and you don't want to get it and you don't want anybody you know to get it. This is the thing that troubles me. I mean, Australia is opening up gradually. Well, Australia is opening up gradually because they've had one death in a week. 
they're down to identifying like 10 or 15 new cases a day. I mean, it's just like they have largely stamped out the virus in Australia, the entire friggin' country. They believe in New Zealand that they might have completely stamped it out. Although there are still a few people in quarantine who have it, but they're looking for, I mean, in Australia and New Zealand and Taiwan and South Korea, they are planning on doing what we did with polio and measles, eliminate them. Now, Trump had the opportunity to do that here in the United States when he was warned in November that this was coming by his intelligence agencies, when he was warned again in December by his intelligence agencies and by China. China in December publicly announced, in December, publicly announced that they had this COVID virus, that they had identified it, that it was a coronavirus, that, you know, the same family as SARS and MERS, and that it was out of control in the Wuhan area or in the Hubei province, in, the, in that, that whole state, and that they were doing something about it. They were locking down the whole damn country. And they advised the rest of the world, you should do this too. That was in December. And, and Donald Trump said, well, we won't do anything about this. And then in January, they released the, the genetic sequence for the virus. And within a week, you had a German company manufacturing test kits and the World Health Organization distributing them to 60 countries around the world. And still Donald Trump said, oh, there's nothing to worry about. And then we got our first case that we knew of in January, on January 20th, the same day that South Korea got their first case. South Korea went into hyperdrive on testing and contact tracing, and they have locked this thing down. And they're on a path to eliminating the virus, which is what China has tried to do, by the way. But now America has become the world's largest reservoir of virus-infected people. And how the hell, I mean, you know, I'm living here in Oregon where, you know, Kate Brown, our governor, is doing a great job of locking down this state and, and working toward eliminating the virus here in Oregon. We had uh, 50 or 60 new cases yesterday, and I think two deaths, both people nursing home age. And, you know, we've been on this downward slide, Multnomah County, which I pay attention to, which is where I live. Uh, we had 11 new cases yesterday. Previous week, we were getting like 20 and 30 new cases every day, and now it's down to 11, right? We're, we're suppressing this thing. We're stamping it out. But how do we do that when the red states open back up or never closed and say, yes, we will be proud reservoirs of the virus? It's troubling, shall we say. Meanwhile, down in Florida, Ron DeSantis says, uh, well, we can open up, no problem. We got plenty of testing. Well, the nursing homes in that state would uh, beg to differ with him. By the way, he has stopped publishing a list of deaths from the county medical examiners. The state officials have told county officials no more releasing information about who died of coronavirus. Hospitals are still limited in the tests they can conduct by shortages of tests and reagents and swabs. One official at one hospital said, uh, for the record, this was a news report, he said, we can order 1,000 test kits, sometimes we get 50. That's a hospital. And Florida has over a million residents who are over 80 years old. And those facilities at the over a million, which means that there's probably a couple hundred thousand people who work in those facilities. So you've got, you know, 1.1, 1.2, 1.3 million people in this highly vulnerable category all of whom should be being tested at least once a week and ideally every day or every other day. 
and none of them are being tested because they can't get tests. Because Jared Kushner and Donald Trump are, are seizing these, these things. And, and well, God only knows actually you know, why. We, one of the things we know is there's one company in Maine that is making basically most of the swabs for America that are not imported, all of the ones that are not imported. And that one company went on TV saying, if Trump would simply give us a government contract for these swabs so that we know we'll get a return on our investment, we'll go out and buy new machines and we can double or triple or quadruple our production, our daily production of swabs. And Trump says, well, you know, this hospital has thousands of test kits. Yeah, but they have 30 swabs. But Trump doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to offer a contract to this company. He'd rather bail out Boeing. Max in Clackamas, Oregon. Hey, Max, what's up? I just sort of want to outline to you a thesis, I guess, is the way to put it. I think that there are several historical precedents for what's going on now that put us on track for a civil war. Obviously, the the big one is the uh, the election itself. It's a cancellation of primaries, denial of access to safe mail-in ballots for the upcoming election for presidency and for lots of other congressional positions. Another big one is what I consider to be forced labor back to work. A lot of these folks in Iowa, in the meatpacking places, the previous call was just mentioning, the conditions are not much better for the humans that work in these you know, factory farms. Mm-hmm. And the people who work there are, are employed virtually at, at slave wage labor. And they're being forced to go back to work. Not to mention, of course, the legalized slavery that we have per the 13th Amendment going on in our prisons, despite the coronavirus outbreak. I also think that the occupation of the Michigan state capitol by these swastika-bearing armed militia members, you know, that's in one state in contrast to New York a month ago and Maryland recently, where the governors actually are sending in the state and national guards to protect incoming medical supplies from being compensated by the federal government. From Jared Kushner. Right, by Kushner right? and by Kushner, yeah. You know, on top of that, you have this massive economic upheaval. I don't know if people are aware, but we, you mentioning Hubert Hoover, the guy who presided over the president, who presided over the Great Depression, the start of it. Well, at the time, there was the Bonus Army, this, mm-hmm. this militia. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. This militia, this armed group of guys. Well, it wasn't a militia. That, those, those were... Those are veterans who had been promised right. a, a bonus from World War One that needed the money right now. It was a hundred bucks, and they needed the money right, which is a lot of money back in the 1930s. And they needed the money right away, so they camped out on the White House, and they were all the way down to the Potomac River. I mean, there are thousands of them, and and uh, Herbert Hoover had who was the Eisenhower or MacArthur? MacArthur, yeah. Well, both of them were there actually, but MacArthur was the main one. You know, just you know, riding their horses through and torching the tents, and you know, just ripped them all up. And that didn't, <laughs> didn't help Herbert Hoover in the election of 32 either. I think one of the important things to remember, Max, is if you look at the civil war in Ukraine, that what led up to that preceded that. And that, that's a war that's still ongoing. And in fact, you know, there's been a partition. There's, you know, the, the eastern part, the Donbass, the eastern part of Ukraine has now separated itself from the government. It was armed groups showing up in government offices and much like they did in Michigan and protesting, you know, a lot of it was being encouraged by Russia. That was the thing that tipped off or started the, uh, the Ukrainian civil war. And now here in the United States, you've got these guys who are being encouraged by Freedom Works, 
the, the front for the billionaires. So you've got Russian oligarchs promoting a civil war in Ukraine, and you've got now American oligarchs yeah. in agreement with you, Max, promoting a civil war here in the United States. I've been reading a lot lately from the anti-federalist papers. I think you'll get a mm-hmm. kick out of this. So 1787, the anti-federalists were writing about the Constitution, and they said that your posterity will find that great power connected with ambition, luxury, and flattery will as readily produce a Caesar, Caligula, Nero, and Domitian in America as the same causes did in the Roman Empire. And that was in 1787. We are their posterity, and here he is. Yeah, somebody has a time machine. I mean, (laughs) that's crazy. Rob Call does a uh, podcast, and I was on his podcast last night. We were talking about this. He runs opednews.com. But I'm just very, very concerned about these right-wing billionaires stirring up these militia guys, you know, via FreedomWorks and via some of these other organizations. And, you know, they're showing up with guns. Meanwhile, in Canada, uh, Justin Trudeau, the prime minister, banned all assault-style weapons and gave the Canadian populace until 2022, gave them two years to turn them in, to turn in their guns. And they're going to do a massive nationwide gun buyback program. And, you know, to, so that people are not injured economically. But this is in the wake of the, one of the deadliest shootings in the history of Canada in uh, Nova Scotia last weekend. He's taking the bull by the horns. Rob in Mesa, Arizona, you have the last minute, Rob. Hey, I wanted to talk about affordable housing, and I think I came up with a solution that I would like to bounce off you and your listeners. Basically, that we should put a moratorium that no corporation, especially foreign corporations, should be allowed to buy anything designated as a single-family home or a resident and allow the chips to fall where they may. And I say that because, you know, we should be valuing first-time home buyers and our kids to get them into housing because that's usually the best wealth. Yeah. most Americans have is a house. And we I agree with you, Rob. I would, put a, I would put a numerical limit on it, though. There are, you know, there are a lot of people who own one or two houses that they've been able to buy through the course of their lives and, and that they use them as rental properties as a way of having sustaining income. So I'd say you know, no corporation or individual, particularly foreign, can own over 10 houses, for example. But I'm with you. I'm with you, Rob. I think it's brilliant. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 